What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. If you're thinking... I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Trial by Content, the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the coliseum of contentious opinion so we can all decide what wins. Each week, your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic, set the specific rules, and rumble until a consensus is reached. Then, with input from you, the listener base, We'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four-nominee poll that will decide the one true trial-by-content winner. Hello, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I am Neil Miller. Wow, what a what a, like a calm intro from, from you guys today. <laughs> yeah. And this week, you know television. It's broadcast over the airways, through cable, or on the internet streaming and provides smaller episodes that thrill and intrigue us. Sometimes those television shows become films, either to build upon the television run or to reboot the concept for new audiences. This week, what is best really? We're attempting to separate the wheat from the chaff as we debate the best movie based on a TV show. But first, we need to check in on last week's trial by content, the best surprise cameo in a movie. How did the votes fall, Joanna? (laughs) Surprise! Really fun results this week, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so ba- our best surprise cameo in a movie, uh, Dave came in dead last place with 9.3% of the I vote. I didn't for... even get the Knights of Neil 10%. <laughs> <laughs> for, for Glenn Close in Hook. Though, it should be said, a few people learned from this very podcast that that was Glenn Close and Hook. So you did some educational work with May your May have pick, been the most Dave. surprising, but not the best. <laughs> Neil comes in 11.7% of the votes with uh, John Hurt and Spaceballs. Uh, our listener did pretty well at 2.9% of the vote, Alanis Morissette and Dogma. And I did okay, too, with 60% of the vote for Matt Damon and Eurotrip. Yeah. 60% of the vote <laughs> for Matt Damon and Eurotrip. Oh, Matt Damon. It Cameo really does King. help to have a song and at least one person from Boston involved. <laughs> Our cameo king, Matt Damon. So um, so that was last week. 
Uh, this week, as Dave mentioned, we're doing a movie based on a TV show. There's a lot of different ways you can define that. The hook, the reason we're doing it this week is there's like a Downton Abbey movie. There's also on the horizon, there's a Bob's Burgers movie. There's the Chippendale Rescues Rangers movie. We're not going to talk about any of those because full disclosure, I haven't seen any of them. In fact, I stopped watching Downton Abbey like season four. How about you guys? Where where were you in your Downton Abbey journey? I definitely stopped watching it before they started making movies out of it. The most I've seen in Downton Abbey, actually, I think, is in Marvel movies. Yeah. Is is there a clip from Downton in a Marvel movie? Yeah, Happy's watching Downton Abbey. Oh, that's I mean, right. he, he likes it. <laughs> but that's the most Downton Abbey I think I've seen. <laughs> I mean, and we all love Dan Stevens, so I'm just saying. That, that's true. <laughs> and Matthew McFadden, who I believe is also in that, right? Is he? Is he? he Doesn't he play? Be. I don't think so. No, but... maybe not. He's just British. <laughs> Seems like he should be. Jorah Mormont's in there, so there's that. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Downton Abbey, but that is the that is the inspiration. But there's a lot we want to talk about in general about this topic, because there's like a few different versions, as Dave alluded to, of what you could do here. Let's talk through it a little bit before we get into the debate itself. There's there's a TV continuation, which is a t uh, which is a movie that has the same cast, went into theaters at the same time, Downton Abbey 2, 1 and 2, would be continuations. This is the same cast, minus Dan Stevens, R.I.P., and, and Lady sure. Sybil and a few other people. The trick with the continuation is that, I mean, especially when these movies based on TV were really, really popular, which is in the 90s, I think is like the height of their popularity, Um that was a time when the line between what is TV and what is a movie is were sharper. And that was also a time when the line between who is a TV star and who's a movie star was, was a lot more uh, harder to cross. I remember like when George Clooney crossed over from ER to movie star, it was like this huge deal. And now it's like movie stars make TV, TV stars make movies. It doesn't, it all costs the same amount, but you have to like, yeah, like at the time, this is the idea of like scaling up, a TV show to be like a capital M movie, like on the big screen was, was sort of a big deal. Um, the, like the example I could think of and spoiler, this isn't in our debate is like the X-Files movies come to mind. Like Gillian Anderson, and David Duchovny were pop culture staples and icons. And Duchovny, I think had made like some has done some film work, but like they still very much felt like TV stars in a movie. Does it work? Et cetera. What do you guys think of that continuation? Uh, attempts. If we're sticking with the X-Files, I specifically remember living through this because the X-Files has a conspiracy mystery aspect to it and also like a goofy aspect to it and the show allowed it to sort of bounce back and forth, do the like very famous Monster of the Weeks. And the interesting thing about the movie when it was coming out is it's like, we're going to explain what's happening and then you went to the movie and you had no idea at the end of it what was happening. I remember that very specifically. <laughs> Where it's like, there's a difference between that and like the other X-File movie, which... Um, Secret of the Fight Use. the Future. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which was about... It was more of a monster of a week and that was after the run of the series was over. But yeah, that first X-Files movie, Fight the Future, is very interesting because it's right in the middle of the run and the run just sort of picks up the summer after. Like, well, that happened. And it's like, oh, all right. Interesting. That was just a big screen uh, episode of the X-Files. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, no, I think this actually is something I've been thinking about with the forthcoming Bob's Burgers movie, which is that it is really difficult to to go back and forth 
sort of midstream, right? Like the idea that the show is still airing. We're getting a new season of the show every week. We're going to get a movie. And then next year, there will be another new season of the TV show. And if they're going to make it fit all sort of neatly into the same canon, you know, how do you do that? Or do you just let the movie be its own thing? I think it is as much a challenge to make a movie based on a TV show while the TV show is still running as it would be to say, reboot the entire concept, you know, as others do. I think part of the joy of like a, an animated series. Um, I don't know why I said the word animated that way. Um, is that, um, it doesn't have a ton of serialized storytelling or continuity and that sort of stuff. So like with Bob's burgers or with a Simpsons movie or something like that, you know, like you don't have to worry that much about, continuity between what we decide to do here and what's happening in the show. Would you say that's accurate? I think that's true. Sure. To a certain extent, I think, but you know, you, you certainly can make it, you know, give it connective tissue to the, to the, to the ongoing story. I think actually Bob's burgers, there are some like ongoing bits and themes that I expect to show up, but uh, yeah. And I guess that's probably why we see most of you know, these sort of midstream continuations come from animated series, right? When you look at the list of the largest, the big list of all of the movies based on TV shows, there are quite a few of them that are animated shows that just did like a feature length straight to cable um, or straight to streaming series of movies. You know, maybe it's the fact they don't need to have all of that intricate continuity, right? The other version of a movie based on a TV show is an adaptation, meaning like, so a good example for both would be Star Trek. We're going to talk about Star Trek a little bit more later on, but let's talk like the original Star Trek to the motion picture is, you know, Shatner is Kirk, et cetera. That's, that's a big movie based on a TV show. Um, But then you've got the JJ Abrams, the Kelvin verse where you have Chris Pine as Kirk and you've got Zachary Quinto and, Zoe Saldana, stuff like that. So that's an adaptation, right? You're like taking a show your IP we're familiar with and giving it a whole a whole new gas. And I think there's a much higher degree of difficulty in that trying to figure out and capture, especially when the creative force behind the camera isn't the same, trying to tap into what made that show work in the first place. And, and because all of this is somewhat of a nostalgia play, right? Or extension of an IP that we're familiar with play. And so to top into that, which I think Abrams was successful with for, for a time. Dave, Dave, what do you think? I mean, it's more like a distilling of a core idea. And then I think trying to hang some nostalgic ornaments on that idea, which I don't mean to say and to diminish it at all. That's incredibly difficult to do because what you're basically dealing with is uh, all the things that allow television shows to be more experimental, uh, to investigate characters or plot in a different way, all have to be trimmed down because you have a shorter runtime. If you have more characters, then you get to have to spend less amount of time with those characters. And unless they are the titular character of the adaptation or something, maybe with those you get a little bit from the audience. And I'm familiar of, you know, the, the Smokey and the Bandit dynamic here, um, but all the other supporting characters, your villain, usually are things that have to be set up within a normal movie, so it's actually more difficult to serve both masters, I think, at that point. Well, I think it gets more dangerous the further away you are, right? The, this, this idea of, you know, 
I think we seem to think of studios making things based on nostalgia as um, something that always works, right? It's easy to think of it as something that always works, but it doesn't necessarily mm. always work. No. And I think that uh, <laughs> the further away you are, the longer it's been since that property was a big deal, it causes, you know, there's there's less room for error there, I think. Let's talk about the, that nostalgia element, right? Because when we were putting together this list, both of our picks and then like a lot of these pre-trial dismissal uh, options that we'll get to, like the big, biggest boom for this concept of taking a TV show, turning it into a movie, um, especially in the adaptation vein, came in the 90s. And that's part of a couple things. Number one, like nostalgia usually runs in like a 30-year uh, gap, right? So we're like in the throes of a 90s nostalgia vibe right now. But in the 90s, we were in a sort of 1960s nostalgia. So you saw a lot of 1960s shows um, adapted into movies for for the 90s. And what's also true is that for those of us who were young in the 90s, it was a really different time in the way we consume uh, the older generation's culture because of syndication and reruns and Nick at Night and stuff like that. And like... VH1 doing all this work with like I love the 70s and behind the music in the 80s like we as we were ingesting our own like 90s culture we're also I mean you guys are like a little younger than me but like we're also gobbling up our parents pop culture so you could put like say a Brady Bunch movie in the theater in the 90s and hit both the people who watched the Brady Bunch when they were kids in like you know in the 70s and then also we all watched it in syndication as well. Um, so that it made the nineties a really, um, unique crossroads for that kind of thing. Because like, if you're going to refret, if you're going to lean into TV nostalgia now, you're probably just going to do a reboot of a TV show. Like that's sort of the route that people do now. I don't know. What, what do you think, Dave? Uh, I agree. I mean, I also think there's something that to be said about technology at that time where it's like, we're able to archive stuff. Like I absolutely agree with you with like the reruns. But also somebody that was, you know, coming up and uh, trying to figure out what type of film and TV that I liked. The whole transition from there being video stores where you could get VHS things that somebody had recorded off of like some international TV channel. Luckily, because I was in Boulder, Colorado, which is a college town, we had things like that. To the ability to get DVDs of an entire TV show's season, which was towards the end of the uh century and uh, at the turn of the century when I was like in in college it was a capability for me to also be interested in a way in movie properties that would allow me to reach back that I don't think existed before in media consumption yeah I mean I think that there's a lot to be said about missing the shared experiences right and one of the shared experiences of the 90s as Joanna pointed out was it wasn't just that like you know, the same big shows were on the main networks, right? Your uh, TGIF lineup on mm -hmm. Friday nights <laughs> that, you know, everybody you knew watched those things. But because of, you know, those, what was that TV? Was it, was it just called like TV Land? Yeah, TV Land. It was like Land. a whole network that just played old shows, right? From the 60s and 70s. And uh, you could sort of watch along with your friends because they just ran the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like constantly. And that was the other thing that was on television. Unless you had HBO, then you just watched a bunch of HBO stuff. It's why you could get away with making a bewitched TV show at all, right? But like, I, I mean, a mo mo movie at all. But like, I think that kids younger than us 
are engaging, of course, in like 90s, early aughts nostalgia. They're watching Friends. They're watching The Office. They're watching New Girl. Like the gap is getting smaller and smaller. But they're, you know, they're watching those shows in like a sort of binge background Netflix peacock streaming kind of way. Yeah, sort of at their own pace and not always together, right? Not always at the same pace. But they wouldn't now make a Friends movie recasting the characters and do like a sort of goofy camp take on it which is what the 90s were famous for doing of like those 60s shows they do a reunion special on hbo max you know what sure. i mean like that's or like a gritty instead. reboot where... oh uh bel-air i want a gritty friends reboot where like the coffee shop is constantly going under they're always trying to save it from the man where they um, where where they have to live in some place that is actually commensurate to how much money right. they make in they New all, York City. Yeah. They all they have to commute an hour yeah. and a half just to get to the Java place. Oh <laughs> uh, well, with that grim uh, idea in mind, but we should say like the '90s didn't invent this. Obviously, like the uh, movies based on TV shows have been around since basically TV shows have been around. There's like a Dragnet movie from the '50s. There's a Lone Ranger movies from the '50s. Not the double problematic army hammer Johnny Depp one, but like uh one with the original cast, et cetera. So um, you know, this is this is an old concept. Uh we pick some of our favorites, which we will talk about in a minute. But first, Neil, like what are what are the rules this week on the show? Well, not only do I have rules for you, but you're gonna want to strap in for this week's pre-trial dismissals <laughs> because <laughs> as we've mentioned, this is a subgenre with a lot of choices. Uh, but your choice uh, for best movie based on a TV show must be a feature length film that's, uh, for the most part, anything over an hour uh, or hour and a half ish feature length uh, that adapts, reimagines, extends, or even reboots a previously existing TV show. And it doesn't matter how it was released, at least not for this debate. It can be, can have been theatrically released or direct to TV, even direct to DVD if you really wanted to, uh, or it could be release to streaming if you're picking something a little bit new. So this is where we also give away some awards. We're going to start with our category crown, which we've decided this week to give to a bunch of different TV shows that were basically sketch comedies that then somehow made it work as movies. And these, uh, some of these don't necessarily qualify perfectly for, uh, you know, we're going to say something that had to be adapted directly from a TV show, but, they all remind us of TV shows, and we're talking here, of course, of movies based on Saturday Night Live characters and sketches. Movies that include The Muppets. The Muppets had a bunch of movies and a TV show first. The movies made by the comedy troupe known as Monty Python, which are all very funny. And of course, the Jackass series, which actually released a movie not long ago uh, that is... An adaptation of what the Jackass TV show really it was. It sure is a movie. <laughs> and it also it sure really is a movie. Um, and this this category crown comes with a quick pop quiz. Uh, and I want you guys, without really thinking too hard, uh, what is the best Saturday Night Live movie that is not the Blues Brothers? Because that is what my pick is. But uh, Joanna, what's the best Saturday Night Live adaptation? Wayne's World. Ooh, Wayne's World. Dave? Hands down. Uh, Joanna is correct. It is Wayne's World. All right. There, well, I guess I'm we sorry, solved it. I, I wish there was more a, a, a complex answer, but if you're going to take Blues Brothers, the other one's Wayne's World. Everyone's leaving A Night at the Roxbury and MacGruber on the table. <laughs> this week's Category Clown is a two-parter. This is an award we give to someone who has made a real mockery of this subgenre. And uh, Dave submitted one, which is... Uh, 
Also to sort of show off the volume at which animated series really play in this subgenre, which is to say that uh, 22 of the 23 Pokemon movies, which, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, these are the ones that did not need to exist. <laughs> correct. Oh, the only one that needed to exist is the first one, because uh, uh, Mewtwo forever. Yeah, and maybe that live-action one that they did recently, Detective Pokemon. That oh, Detective Pikachu. Detective that's Pikachu. Not, yeah. That's not even counted amongst the official Pokemon, okay. because these are the ones adapted from the TV show, so these are very specifically TV I just want to make Pokemon sure we didn't get any unnecessary Detective Pikachu slander. Oh, no. Not a, a, never. That's never. a great movie. <laughs> Uh, but the true clown of this category <laughs> is a little movie that M. Night Shyamalan made called The Last Airbender, which is somehow, it's like, it's like they set out to make the worst possible adaptation of the best possible show in adapting Avatar The Last Airbender, the Nickelodeon series. You watched Avatar The Last Airbender for the first time, like, just last year. Well, no, I had seen... I, I yeah, I watched this the the Nickelodeon series for the first time, and I had seen the Shyamalan movie previously. And then, did you rewatch the Shyamalan after you watched? We did, the, yeah. And yes. how did that go for you? I believe that there was almost an upheaval with all the people that I forced to watch it with me. I was I <laughs> honestly was almost booted out of the industry, which M Night Shyamalan's lucky that that didn't happen to him. So, <laughs> if you can't agree uh, how your main character's name is pronounced after having heard Ong. it spoken aloud <laughs> Ong. Yeah. Ong. for three seasons of an animated series, maybe you shouldn't be making that movie yeah. there. Mistakes were made, crimes were committed. Our category clown is the last airbender. De- Dev Patel <laughs> offers apologies for that movie every time oh he can. So, poor Dev. Poor Dev. Uh, All right, so that brings us to our pretrial dismissals, which, as always, is a list of contenders that we've identified as being worthy of mentioning on the pod. But the reason why we're mentioning them pretrial is because nobody picked them as their their pick for either our three choices or the three listener choices that we picked. So some of these were mentioned by our listeners. Um, All of them are interesting. Uh, None of them are going to be part of the debate. And we're going to start with, there's a recent direct TV streaming surge of these kind of movies, many, many continuations. We're talking about El Camino, we're talking about Deadwood, The Many Saints of Newark, which I guess is prequel, technically. Uh, there was a Prison Break movie, remember that? There have no. been <laughs> No, nobody does. There have been many Doctor Who movies that have gone straight to television, and some of them are very wonderful. There's a couple of Batmans. We got Batman 1966, which is a direct adaptation of the 1960s TV series. We've also got Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which is a direct result of Batman the Animated Series. We've got a Mel Gibson starring movie called Maverick, which is about playing cards on a boat. We've got a film from Armando Iannucci, and we've got a clip from this one. It is the classic political comedy in the loop, let's give it a listen. Go on. It'll be easy peasy lemon squeezy. No, it won't. It will be difficult, difficult, lemon difficult. That is what it will be. Have a lovely afternoon. Stop a war for me. <laughs> difficult, <laughs> difficult, lemon difficult is a good way to describe how I'm going to make it through this list of dismissals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, we continue on. Our list of pretrial dismissals that is about as long as the history of television itself. We have the Flintstones. There was a really great John Goodman movie. Well, I mean, fun in a nostalgic way, but maybe not a good movie. There's uh, the Avengers, but not the one you're thinking of. 
based on a it's a spy thing, right? The Avengers, right? Yeah, They're spies. It's, it's yeah, British Uma spies. Uma Thurman and Ray Fiennes. That's right. Update of the 1960s show starring Dame Diana Rigg. Well, there you go. Shout out to Dame Diana Rigg. Uh, we've also got The Addams Family and The Addams Family Values, two very important movies in my childhood. We've got The Man from Uncle, which is a delightful movie that also involves Army Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> we've got. We got the film Lost in Space. Speaking of friends who went on to try to do movies and didn't, this one had Joey from Friends in it. It was bad. They eventually would reboot this uh, back into a TV show that was good. So, would you rather watch <laughs> Lost in Space or Ed? The the like it's a gorilla movie, right? Is about it about baseball? Orangutan? Yeah, chimpanzee may- movie? Maybe. Chimpanzee? Yeah, I would rather watch Dunstan Checks In than all of those things. Speaking of movies and primates. Speaking of movies with animals that are very confusing in size, uh, the film Wild Wild West, (laughs) starring Will Will Smith and Kevin Kline. And then, of course, we're going to throw it back all the way back to Dragnet. And for this one, we also have a clip. Let's hear it. Thank God it's Friday. Hi, everybody. It's me, Pep. Good to see you. So long, hotshot. Muzz, you weren't even born with the sense God gave the common dog. Don't you realize that's my partner? <laughs> you know, Muzz, you have the right to remain silent. If you give up the right to remain silent, anything you say, you know these words, Muzz. Come on, sing along. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Okay, so <laughs> I figured if I was going to put a, a movie clip in here that, that had to do with cops, um, that Dave would want to talk about that, and I figured I should include the part where Tom Hanks kind of raps Miranda rights at one That point. isn't even the worst rapping associated with the Dragnet movie. It's true. It's uh, true. Movie. Thomas Hanks. Right after he did the Pee Wee Herman laugh. <laughs> anyway, Tom Hanks saying, thank God it's Friday when Dan Aykroyd uh, shows up at the end of Dragnet is one of my favorite movie moments of all time. So Incredible. All right, back to the list. We have uh, the double feature, if you will. Of Dudley Do Right and George of the Jungle, both Brendan Frasers. Yeah, du- double okay, Fraser. Both Brendan Frasers, double Fraser, always good. Just maybe not those two. The Brady Bunch. They did a Brady Bunch movie. I remember that one. Scooby Doo. I believe James Gunn was involved in the Scooby Doo franchise at one point. Get Smart with Steve Carell and Hathaway, and uh, a far less famous The Rock. Um, there was the movie SWAT which involves Colin Farrell. I don't think that this is going to be the first time Colin Farrell comes up in this debate. The, the last, yeah, yeah, no. Right? Uh, or, yeah, the last time, sorry. Uh, we got Starsky and Hutch, little Ben Stiller, shout out. We got Charlie's Angels, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, shout another, out. Another appearance by Joey from Friends. <laughs> right. Uh, we got G.I. Joe, another appearance from The Rock and a very charming potato at one point. Uh, We've got the movie Traffic. That's Soderbergh's Traffic. I actually didn't know this one was, uh, or had forgotten, I guess, that this one was adapted from a TV show. Uh, we got Veronica Mars. That's a more recent one, right? They crowdfunded. Yeah. The Kickstarter movie. Yeah. It feels more recent, but I bet you it was over five years ago. It was. Yep. Yep. Uh, We got the X-Files movies uh, that we've already talked about, and we've also got one that I promise you this one was extremely close to making it into the debate. It is the Nickelodeon adaptation, Good Burger, because we all want a good burger. And finally, we 
I guess cannot leave out some of the contributions of Joss Whedon. Uh, <laughs> take my load, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. Which means that we're going to end our pretrial dismissals with this clip from the movie Serenity. Carlos, give it to us. I'm a leaf on the wind. Watch how I go. <laughs> Watch. <laughs> Rest in peace, Wash, and rest in peace, our Thanks. Rest in peace, Wash. Rest in peace, our ability to talk about a Joss Whedon property without any controversy. So we are leaving it off the debate. We did get a bunch of listener emails about it, though. Um, no one's telling you you can't love Serenity, but we're not going to be debating it today. So. Yeah. So there you have it. Your your reminder that <laughs> in order to get a movie version of that, Wash had to die. Call. <laughs> 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 Just like a full death impalement. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. All right, that means we are coming up on our opening remarks. Uh, each host has one minute to give an initial pitch for their choice. And Joanna gets to go first because she uh, won last week. And then Neil, and then myself. Let's kick it off with Joanna whenever she's ready. Okay, so my clip uh, that I'm going to play here is going to do most of my arguing again for me this week. And the reason why is this, really quickly. The Fugitive, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones starring Fugitive from the 90s, uh, was such a cable rewatch staple that once beloved, now slightly embattled comedian John Mulaney got huge laughs just from reciting plot of the end of the fugitive let's hear him do that now it's actually it's the ballroom from the end of the movie the fugitive remember so that ballroom so my mom and i walk in uh the sorry the end where uh harrison ford as dr richard kimball uh, uh bursts in to confront dr charles nichols right my mom and i walk in why does kimball confront nichols well i know we all know this but no no but 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 kimball he found out that nichols along with devlin mcgregor and lentz who's mysteriously died they had hired frederick sykes the one our man to kill kimball kimball's wife wasn't even the target i know we all know this but they were going to kill kimball because he wasn't going to approve certain liver samples to pass rud 90. so kimball finds out about all of this and of course He's furious, and he bursts in the ballroom, and he goes, you switched the samples. And Dr. Nichols is like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Dr. Richard Campbell. What accent did that guy have, by the way? He goes, you switched the samples, and you doctored your research so that you could have Provasic. Anyway, so is that ballroom. That's, uh, that's John Mulaney <laughs> telling you the end of The Fugitive, a perfect movie that won Tommy Lee Jones an Academy Award. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones sneaking into the argument right at the end. <laughs> well, all right. I mean, I didn't bring any John Mulaney clips. Big oversight on my part. <laughs> but I did bring a choice that is not the fugitive. And I, it all for me begins with the big question what do you need in order to expertly make the jump from TV to the big screen? 
I think it takes a little bit of time, especially if you're going to reboot. You don't want to do it too soon. I think it takes knowing what worked for from the TV show. You know, let's say you have a popular spy show that's known for having an iconic theme song and for using clever gadgets to solve existential worldwide threats. You also have to add something new, maybe bring in a top-tier director and a world-class Hollywood action star. Friends, that's exactly what Paramount chose to do in 1996 when they brought Brian De Palma and Thomas Cruise Mapother IV together to relaunch Mission Impossible as a movie franchise. They made us care about Ethan Hunt and his team. They delivered at least two of the most impressive action sequences of all time, and they paved the way for two and a half decades of pure action bliss. This clip is from a fancy little restaurant scene in the 1996 classic Mission Impossible. Let's hear it. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Hunt. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil? That's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. Yeah, let's do it in hell. Mission Impossible. <laughs> All right, I am up third. Here we go. Airing two seasons consisting of 30 episodes from April 8th, 1990 to June 10th, 1991, Twin Peaks went from season one phenomena to declining viewership during the end of season two after the show dispatched what seemed to be the core mystery of the series, Who Killed Laura Palmer? In 1992 at the Cannes Film Festival, David Lynch premiered the film version, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, and got booed because the Cannes audience was wrong. This movie <laughs> is a dark, single-character study in contrast to the series' light soap opera tinged ensemble cast. In Firewalk With Me, we see the final days of Laura Palmer with full foreknowledge from the show, who her killer is. The movie used the supernatural elements of the story to exist as both a prequel and a sequel to the television series, frustrating fans at the time for not providing any answers to the fate of Dale Cooper and Heather Graham's Annie Blackburn from the series Cliffhanger. But as of now, after Twin Peaks The Return continued the story in 2017, Firewalk With Me has become an essential text to the overall story and a masterpiece film for David Lynch, who kicks off a banner period in his film career with Firewalk With Me. The movie is a gut punch on its own, but could serve as your introduction to the weird world being the film entry in the whole Twin Peaks story. Here's a clip. He says he wants to be me or he'll kill me. No. No. Yes! Yes! What? Please, what? Fire. Walk. Or if we're going the John Mulaney thing, Sarah Palmer, there's a horse in your house. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing there. I hope that no one was trying to use this podcast to like lull themselves to sleep because <laughs> now they're wide awake. Can I start by asking Neil a question? Yeah, please do. Hey, Neil, how'd you pick which Mission Impossible movie to do? Well, I took the first one because it's the most, I guess, direct link to the original TV show, right? I have a problem with with a few rare exceptions with trying to tie like sequels to this question, right? Like I I I do feel like at one point whilst discussing it either on Twitter or somewhere in a Slack somewhere that stuff like The Dark Knight came up where it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's that is a Batman movie and Batman has had a TV show back in the day, but that movie itself didn't come from a TV show, right? 
the first Mission Impossible is the most like the television show. There's even one character, uh, John Voight's, uh, ugh, John Voight, uh, John Voight's Jim Phelps. Jim Phelps, is, yeah. You know, is a carryover from Peter Graves' character in the OG series. The theme song, you know, and then the rest is open to interpretation and further adaptation and... I think it's kind of fun to look at the entire Mission Impossible franchise because if you look at those first couple of movies as like, you know, extensions uh, or like their own seasons of the Mission Impossible adventure, um, it's kind of fun to think about the different creators who put their hands on the franchises went through. But I think De Palma was was trying to do what is essentially at 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 the forefront of this debate, which is take a classic TV series, give it new life, give it some of the things that people recognize, but give it enough of its own life to obviously spawn six more Mission Impossible movies. I don't know if he knew that at the time, but, uh, but yeah, so the, I think the first one is, is the most important of those Mission Impossible movies. Part of my prep for this podcast was listening to another podcast, the Great Green Drafts podcast, a, a show that we've all been on. And um, like our pals, Alan Seppenwall, Drew McWeeny, who know who are TV scholars, did two different episodes about it, TV movie adaptations and movie continuations of TV shows. And they had this really interesting Mission Impossible debate where they were talking about because I've never seen the original Mission Impossible show. Have you? I've seen some of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were talking. It was really interesting because they were talking about how in that first one, like they kill off the team right away. Right. So it's mostly like a Tom Cruise and then like, you know, a, a dame, can you trust her, can you not, who knows, um, sort of thing. It's not like a team movie, whereas la- but whereas the show was like a team show and then the later movies are much more team movies and so are much more part of the original spirit of the show. And I'm wondering how much that you think that matters, that like the original spirit of the show is captured or not. Well, I think that part of what the original show really liked to do is yet yeah, it's, it's about the team and i think all of those movies are to a certain extent around uh, about ethan's team you know especially ethan and luther um but i like that we pick up new team members as we go through but it was really it was more about the disguises it was more about the gadgets it was more about the obviously the level of difficulty of the missions is sort of the the key thing in a mission impossible um so I don't know. I don't I it's definitely an adaptation choice, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad one, especially because of where the franchise continues to go, right? It continues to be about the team. The team as a team doesn't really become a team until Ghost Protocol because that's when you have Renner and Simon Pegg and they repeat after that, right? Along with Ving Rhames. And and it is this it's the choice to break the team in that opening sequence of this adaptation of the movie, right? It's like we're going to take this existing team with you know emilio estevez who he's going to be important right and we're going to blow it up and that's going to be our choice for where this movie should go and i think that i think that really does sort of you know play on one of the things that was big about the series is everybody loved the team so it's it's brian de palma's one of the many ways in which brian de palma sort of works against expectations while i would argue still having a lot of the dna of the original show Speaking of original shows, uh, Joanne, I've never seen The Fugitive. Have you? Have you seen? You know the original what's Fugitive? bananas about The Fugitive? It is a hundred and twenty episodes. <laughs> that's the 
It's the reason why I can't say I've seen all of the Mission Impossible it's show. It's four like seasons, seasons of 30 episodes. That is a lot and, of television. basically, the premise is the same as the movie, which is just Dr. Richard Kimball's wife has died. He has been framed for her murder. There's a one-armed man, and he is on the run trying to prove his innocence. That's it. Perfect movie plot. <laughs> Bananas 120 episodes of television plot. So this is an example, I think, of an adaptation where the runtime of a movie much better suits the premise than a, than an actual TV show did. I think. But this this also does bring up one of my sort of core questions about this debate, and I think this works for and against our picks in really interesting ways. Which is, do audiences need to have watched the show in order to understand what's happening in the movie? Right. So, like Mission Impossible, you do you do not right. In fact. I would assume that a lot of people who have seen Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible don't care about or have ever watched any of the seven seasons of the 1960s television show. Uh, Twin Peaks, it feels like this works against it a little bit because. Well, here's the thing about. I don't know if you could jump in with Fire Walk with me. (laughs) Wait, hold on, Dave. Okay, okay. The Fugitive is another interesting one because the story of the film is essentially the exact same story of the TV show. So if you've seen the TV show, you may not even need to see the film. Well, I think the um, details of the evil pharmaceutical company and all of that stuff is, is added, added movie stuff. And And I think Harrison Ford is, it's hard not to watch Harrison Ford do his thing. This movie is so good. Like every time I rewatch it, I'm surprised by how good it is. It shouldn't be as good as it is. And part of it is Harrison Ford. And part of it is Tommy Lee Jones, who again, what an entire Oscar for chasing Harrison Ford through sewers. But he's, I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is freaking incredible. And then the bench in the movie is also incredible. Julianne Moore has like 10 lines. Jane Lynch has 10 lines. Like it's, it's so good. But you were saying Dave in defense of your nightmare <laughs> choice. <laughs> a movie, a movie that I do respect a lot more having seen the return. Like once I saw the return, it sort of tried to reclaim the movie. The movie is still a tough sit. Yeah, there's a huge uh, behind-the-scenes drama about, you know, David Lynch and Mark Frost are the two creators of Twin Peaks, and David Lynch sort of fell off towards the end of the second season, and Mark Frost sort of took over with some mythology-heavy things, and then uh, the movie is pure David Lynch uh, revisiting the murder that kicks off uh, his series, uh, but then also infusing it with what he'd learned about mythology, but also through David Lynch transitioning in his transcendental meditation age. So there's a lot of great ideas uh, in Firewalk with me. But what I was initially responding to is Neil was like, do they have to have seen the series Mm -hmm. to understand the movie? Do you need a story context? I I don't think anybody understands this movie initially. (laughs) Like, I think that's part of the the lyricism of Firewalk with me. I think that's why it was like booed at can, and I think that's why the first time I saw it, I didn't realize uh, what it was. I have an uphill argument for sure, because even going through the pre-child dismissals, they're all a whole bunch of fun. Firewalk with me is very dense. Uh, it has some very ugly subject matter, and it is much darker than the tone of the series that it's based on. So if you watch the first two seasons of Twin Peaks and didn't think anything was wrong with it, uh, you're going to be very surprised with this. Luckily, like uh, Joanna said, the third season, Twin Peaks The Return, has, I think, allowed this story to come nearer to a conclusion, but definitely proves uh, that the movie was not only necessary, but I think 
kind of notable in how David Lynch evolved as a filmmaker. So it's tough because I guess my best argument is that Firewalk With Me is just a more ambitious movie. And if I want it to win over your guys' movie, I have to argue that it's like actually somehow a better movie. So like Fugitive, I absolutely agree that it's like it took what should have always been a movie plot and uh, condensed it to a movie length. So it really 120 cooks. episodes. I know. I know. That's crazy. <laughs> Dr. Richard Kimball on the run. And then I really like Neil's pick because out of all the Mission Impossible movies, I think the first one has the most identifiable hooks. And like it does, it only takes two Mission Impossible movies for Metallica to be doing the theme song. You know, it goes off the rails into its own fucking thing really fast. Uh, but I think the first Mission Impossible has uh, a bit more. Uh, winking at the original series and possibly could be a continuation if you view it through the Phelps angle in the correct way, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, Firewalk with me is just really dense and the difficult choice. But I think if somebody votes for Firewalk with me, they're likely to A, have seen the movie already. So they have already uh, not understood it once and made some some advancements towards understanding it. And I think more people would like my series if they watched all of my series and included my movie. So mine being a continuation and not some sort of simplified reboot, I think strengthens it as an overall piece of cinema. I don't know if it's going to win this particular showdown. I think it's hard to hang with Twin Peaks for a long time without Kyle MacLachlan, even if he's playing like a different character as he was for much of the but return. But Cheryl Lee's so good in it here and she doesn't even get to do the, anything in the TV series. It's so incredible and it, and it is a really good moment. Like if you've never seen Firewalk with me, like the way that Twin Peaks kicked off this like, you know, dead girl wrapped in plastic trope of like, let's kick off a gritty crime series. Well, Twin Peaks is not all, all great all the time, but like, you know, with a dead girl and you never learn much about the dead girl. And so the fact that like, we got to know Laura Palmer in Firewalk with Me felt like a really cool thing that Lynch did. I just think it doesn't feel like Twin Peaks without Kyle MacLachlan would be my main critique of that movie. There's some Kyle MacLachlan, and I think also for me, I'm going to throw this in. Uh, my movie adds David Bowie to a whole television mythology, which is a fantastic addition to any mythology. Is Bowie in Mission Impossible, <laughs> Neil? Not he in the future either. What a hot bummer. Sadly. Oh, Although no. I guess I had not considered that part of this debate was not just convincing folks that this is the best movie based on a TV show, but that they should also watch the TV show. Because that uh, that's not how I made my <laughs> No, <laughs> my I agree. I think sure. if I were to if I were to recommend a TV show out of the three of us, I think Dave wins that. Like watch Twin Peaks before you watch. 120 episodes of Dr. <laughs> Richard Kimball on the run. Especially since John Milani <laughs> just told you who did it. <laughs> Joanna and I want you to have great experiences that don't require you doing a bunch of extra work, which I believe is the point I was trying to make when I started this, which is if I have to watch a couple seasons of Twin Peaks, not that that's a bad thing, obviously, but it does add homework to the movie. I wish I could just, you know, jump in, enjoy the movie as I can do with Mission Impossible. Or you can enjoy the entire story mirrored from the 120 episodes of television if you watch The Fugitive. I think you guys both have sequels that become their own things in terms of we're going to spin off from the plot. 
But I think that's, if anything, the only thing that I have specifically in my argument is my movie makes the TV series better. It's a continuation. It leads you back into it from any angle that you want to view it because of the specific subject matter. And it exists as this really pitch black, premiered at Cannes 1992 movie about uh, like uh, incest and sexual violence. I would argue, and I, I don't know if this is true of Mission Impossible, the TV show, only because it has such an iconic theme, but I think that The Fugitive would have been forgotten along with an, a lot of other similar 1960s shows were it not for the movie that resurrected the concept of Dr. Richard Kimball and the one-armed man and all that sort of stuff. So I think that that, it, like, in that way, the movie preserves the legacy of the show. Well, I mean, Mission Impossible was made exactly 30 years from when the show first debuted. So by that point in the 90s, I don't know how many people were still you know, hoping and dreaming for a Mission Impossible thing. No, but I think people were like still like humming that music when they would do like sneaky spy stuff <laughs> and like sketches and stuff like that. That's like it's like the Pink Panther theme. Like it doesn't go away. That 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 music really sells it. Is mine the only show slash movie that doesn't get a shout out in Ace Ventura Pet Detective? Does the fugitive get a shout out in Ace Ventura? It Patrick? wasn't me. Oh. It was the one-armed man. <laughs> wow. I literally never heard your Jim Carrey impression until today. What a joy. Uh, should we do our listener submission? Let's. Let's see if any of these show up at Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Uh, I usually start these out. So let's start with Neil this week. All right. Well, my pick, this actually comes from two different listeners. And one of our listeners, Chris, who was our first ever winner of of a poll on trial by content back when we were trying to do Batman villain. Anyway, here's what Chris says. Chris says, my pick for best movie adaptation of a TV show is Michael Mann's 2006 masterpiece, Miami vice. To me, Miami vice is an approach to a film adaptation that I don't think has really been done before. Michael Mann was a producer on the Miami vice TV show and wrote one of its best episodes. His stylistic slash thematic fingerprints are apparent in the show, but it's not his singular vision. In his film adaptation, Mann takes the environment and characters of the TV show and reimagines them to fit a new story that he wants to tell. He trades in the bright, multicolor palette with his signature noirish style, while still contrasting the muted darkness of nighttime scenes with the shine of sunny climates. The story is straight out of, cl of a classic Miami Vice episode, drug running, Crockett and Tubbs undercover, a complicated romance, and unforeseen consequences. And the film itself, as a whole, is brilliant. It's phenomenally shot, brilliantly acted. The story is well-paced, combination of action, intrigue, melodrama. You're made to genuinely care about these characters as much as you did about their counterparts on the TV show. <laughs> Are you? Oh, okay. <laughs> and like I said up top, I don't think there's been another adaptation quite like this. It's particularly unique in that man make, takes everything he loves from the source material he helped create and remakes it in his own way with a new cast, new look, new era, all without losing the spirit of the TV show. It's a great movie from a great show. And also, we will add from Warren, who also wrote in about Miami Vice. Miami Vice is underrated and hasn't gotten the respect it deserves. Now is the chance to remedy that. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. People are going to come in here. You know what they're going to say? They're going to look around and they're going to go, oh, I hear. That's some crazy motherfucking wallpaper. What is that? Jackson Pollock? No vehicle. That was Jose Euro. Got splattered all over his own wall. So, 
can close each other's eyes right now real fast. Then ain't nobody gonna make no money. There you have it. Colin Farrell, Jamie Foxx threatening to uh, detonate a grenade and blow themselves and a drug kingpin all against the wall. Or they could just make some money in Michael Mann's 1986 Miami Vice. Colin Farrell, dubious accent in tow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's also true. I'll go next. I went with Anders, who said... When a TV show is adapted into a movie, it can be hit or miss. The best ones feel like an extended, higher-budget episode of the show, while still feeling like you could drop it in the continuity of the show without missing a beat. I like that definition, Anders. Back to you, though. (laughs) (laughs) To find the perfect example, look to 1999 South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. The title says it all. This is South Park that you already know. It had been on the air for two years at that point, just bigger, longer, and uncut. The South Park movie expanded on the premise of the show, and capitulated uh, to its golden era, catapulted it to its golden era, capitulated to nothing. I'm sorry, Anders. <laughs> and catapulted it to its golden era, starting with season three. The film comes in under 90 minutes, so it doesn't drag one bit, and stands out as an incredible example of a musical bringing back songs from the show itself, Kyle's Mom's a Bitch, with new tracks that parody existing musicals, La Resistance, and garnered Stone and Parker and Oscar nomination, Blame Canada. The movie gives fans of the show an incredible ride and displayed what talent the showrunners are hiding, previewing all of their coming success on Broadway and in film. Let's listen to a little bit of a song. You see the distant flames, they bellow in the night. You fight in all our names for what we know is right. And when you all get shot and cannot carry on, though you die, la resistance lives on. You may get stabbed in the head with a dagger or a sword. You may be burned to death. Skin alive or worse, but when they torture you, you will not feel the need to run for though you die. La resistance lives on. Blame Canada. Another Oscar Blame winner. Canada. Wow. Did it win? It was nominated. Did it win? It was oh, nominated. Another Oscar nom, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Only one Oscar winner in this batch, <laughs> let's be clear. All right, I'm gonna go with uh a by far the most popular listener submission we got. I think I don't know, we got tons of emails with this picked. I'm reading from two, Jeff and Steve, but I do want to shout out Scott, who has been a listener for a long time, who also submitted this. Jeff, a Steve, and a Scott? Wow. This takes me back to our lost days. (laughs) Jeff says, I'm going with Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. It is 86% slash 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and is a direct sequel to an episode of the series. Cardo Montalban is great. The movie is so good. They remade it with Cumberbatch playing Khan in the new movies with J.J. Abrams. Lastly, your boss, I think this is Bill Simmons, loves yelling Khan. Uh, and then Steve says, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, based on the original series and also based on episode 22 of season one in particular. Khan was portrayed by Ricardo Montalban in the original series and the movie. Deny those pecs? I think not. Deny those Shakespearean quotes? I think not. Deny rich Corinthian leather? Fuck no. So let it be written. Let it be done. Let's hear from Ricardo Montalban. I've heard you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. Let me really quickly say a few things in in, uh, in the con camp, right? Like, 
we've already mentioned Star Trek, the original motion picture that did not, that was not well received. And also Star Trek, the series itself was sort of like on shaky ground in terms of his pop culture relevancy when this movie came out. And this movie was such a smash all a hit that it like is kind of responsible for Star Trek enduring past the original series in our uh, collective consciousness. It's got a ton going for it. William Shatner's best thing William Shatner has ever done by far is this movie, right? It's got the creepy earworms. It's got Spock dying, but not, but yes. Uh, it's got a Kobayashi Maru. Like, what more What more could you ask for? This movie is everything. And it's, it is such an interesting idea to take a character from a villain from the show and make it a villain of an entire movie. Like, I don't think any of, and not even the X-Files, like, did something like that. So, yeah, Wrath of Khan. It is hard to deny. I, I mean, the... Uh, the way where I'm going to start picking here is at Neil. Neil, first of all, love love the choice uh, from Chris. Very well argued. How many shows where a group of cops have to stop some generic crime in some particular setting do you think were launched between 1989 at the end of Miami Vice and 2006 when the movie came out? I thought you were making points against Miami Vice. Because, sure, everybody did it, but nobody did it like Michael Mann. Yeah. I mean, that's like a Michael Mann uh, takes a premise and makes a good movie more than I think Michael Mann necessarily makes a good Miami Vice. You know, and I think Star Trek Wrath of Khan probably has a little bit of this. Obviously, Twin Peaks has a little bit of this. But there is something to be said about the same creator coming back and making something. You know, as Chris explains... Michael Mann wasn't the creator of the original Miami Vice show, but he was a producer. He wrote some really good episodes. And then for him to be the guy that comes back to it much later is unique. And I think, uh, you know, it, it definitely helps, especially if you're just trying to get the vibe right. I think there's some really fun, scummy Grand Theft Auto, literally Colin Farrell doing anything uh, joy to be had. He's for a Miami fiend Vice. for mojitos is what you need to know. But I just, I don't know. I, w- I would not put it in the same bucket as South Park or Wrath of Khan. Sure. These are tough ones. I, Wrath of Khan, I think I mentioned earlier that there are only rare exceptions to my no sequels rule in choosing for this debate, right? Like, I wasn't going to take you know, Mission Impossible 2, for instance, even though I love doves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> doves and motorcycles. Yeah. So, uh, but Star Trek Wrath of Khan gets gets through for for two reasons. <laughs> like Joanna said, it it really did sort of take Star Trek to a new level of consciousness. I, it's one of my all time favorite movies to watch in a theater as a repertory screening. I've seen it like four or five times in a theater uh, in this century, and it's great. But because it was it it did pull directly from the TV show. And I think that that is, you know, that's an important thing when you're uh, when you're doing any kind of reboot or continuation is, do you have some connective tissue that people will people who are really big fans will recognize? Right. It's not just about bringing a new audience in. I uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's tough. it's like it's really tough. Like I I think Miami Vice, with much love and respect, does not belong on the final four. Um, and I would say uh, South Park really belongs in this conversation. That movie is way better than it should have been. Um, people who didn't don't even like South Park, the TV show, loved that movie. Like and and like never underestimate like how much we were all singing those songs and uh, you know for like years afterwards. 
but Khan is Khan, you know? Khan is so good that J.J. Abrams is like, what if I just do that again? Is that okay? <laughs> does it does it work against Khan that they made No, how dare you? How terrible... dare you? How dare you blame <laughs> Ricardo right. Montalban's magnificent chest for the crimes that J.J. Abrams perfect. Wouldn't J.J.'s Wrath of Khan Redux be in your bottom three? Star Trek and shouldn't shouldn't no. we consider that? I guess we can't really penalize the movie from the 80s, but I don't know, man. There's some real stink on the whole Khan storyline nowadays. There, there's <laughs> so much stink on the whole Khan storyline. He got re-stinked at the end of Picard season two. It's just Khan stink everywhere. I'll, I'll say this, which is arguing against myself, but Joanna just made a great argument for South Park, so here's my one thing that why we should probably go with Wrath of Khan is South Park movie, great. I have a lot of personal memories of seeing it in theaters multiple times, as Joanna was saying, singing lots of the songs, uh, great Robin Williams performance of Blame Canada at the Academy Awards, great uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone uh, on LSD at the Academy Awards, uh, wearing dresses. There's a lot of good things that come out of it. Uh, The movie itself doesn't look that good because they used... Uh, the excuse of making the movie to completely switch software and they're still running. So they've been using the movie software ever since the movie, which as our um, Anders pointed out when he wrote in is like season three and now we're on season like 20 something. So the show has gotten sharper in its delivery, sharper in its songs. And I think sharper in its look uh, since South Park, bigger, longer and uncut. So although it's like a landmark movie and it belongs Amongst the 1999 movies of note, uh, I don't think it's the the best movie based off of uh, a TV show. In other words, con, con. <laughs> yeah, this is a tough one. I feel like I should fight more for my close personal friend and personal hero, Michael Mann. <laughs> but this is con is a tough one to overcome. Uh, I can't believe I learned that. Neil loves doves and Dave has Jim Carrey impression in the same episode. (laughs) What a podcast, man. It has been uh, quite the podcast, but it's not over yet because we still have final statements uh, for our others picks toward joining Chris who are not. No, I'm sorry. Not Chris. Jeff, Stephen, Scott, who all picked (laughs) Wrath of Khan. We go in reverse order, which means I get to start. Guys, I know I have an uphill battle on this one, but I'm assuming that if you know, if you're picking up what I'm lying down, you've you've watched Twin Peaks, you've watched Firewalk with me, you know the magic and how difficult it is to explain to somebody how mind-bending of a movie this is that stars uh, masked monkeys, weird backwards-talking people, uh, David Bowie blinking in and out of existence, and various other oddities that still tells a very interesting story, I think, about uh, suffering and redemption. It's Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. I think it's the best movie we talked about uh, today because it is but a part of a whole that is Twin Peaks. All right, I guess that means it's my turn. And it's an opportunity for all of us to take a moment and think about what this all, where this all started. It all starts with a TV show, right? TV shows are designed to go on and on and last long and become iconic franchises that have you humming 
its theme song. So when I'm looking for a movie that reboots and restarts and extends a franchise, I'm not just looking for a one and done. I don't care how many Oscars you got nominated for. I'm looking for a movie that has spawned one of the iconic movie franchises of my lifetime. And that is 1996's Mission Impossible. Do it. Wow, you really dangled that argument sweatily over <laughs> pristine white <laughs> all right yeah. now let's let's close this out um you don't need to hear any more from me you've heard plenty from me let us hear from uh oscar winner himself tommy lee jones listen up ladies and gentlemen our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes average foot speed over uneven ground barring injuries four miles an hour that gives us a radius of six miles what I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. I mean, does that make you want to, like, stop the podcast and go watch The Fugitive right now? What a go movie. search all the doghouses. <laughs> Yeah, if you're going to do Tommy Lee Jones monologues uh, for your your future outros, I think you have to do the full impression instead of just doing the clip. (laughs) I think that's going to be our rule. That's a rule you can try to make up, but who says I have to? uh, I'll do my Tommy Lee Jones from the future impression right now. It goes like this. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I also Googled and the actor who plays uh, Roger Pedactor in Ace Ventura Pet Detective is the principal of Twin Peaks High School. So Ace Ventura Pet Detective, really the nexus point of this week's podcast. Fun facts all around. Uh, So to recap, we have The Fugitive. We have Mission Impossible. We have Firewalk With Me. And we have Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Don't worry about who did what. Vote with your heart. That's, That's the best way to do it, right? You could find our poll for the best movie based on a TV show on TheRinger.com, on at Ringer, on Twitter, and in the Spotify app where you find Trial by Content. You choose the winner and we'll announce it next week and there will be consequences. Speaking of next week, we have a whole other debate going on. Neil, what are we talking about for next week's Trial by Content? Oh, wow. I mean, where to even begin with next week's topic? Because it is going to be probably one of the most raucous times we've ever had on this podcast. We will be debating the best Ewan McGregor performance in anything. All that matters is that it's Ewan McGregor doing a performance and that you believe it is his best. So you can send your pick for the best Ewan McGregor performance and a few sentences to support your pick to trial by content at gmail.com. You can also submit suggestions for future trial by content topics. We love those. But yes, next week, uh, in anticipation of a little show called Obi-Wan, we will be talking about the best Ewan McGregor performances. So send your picks on over, trialbycontent at gmail.com. That's right. Choose life, choose a job, choose Tatooine, choose protecting Luke Skywalker. (laughs) Next week, best Ewan McGregor performance. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do the accent next week. All right. I will. Oh, I I think maybe we all get monologues <laughs> That's next a guarantee. week. That might be very possible. <laughs> so we will see you for that. This episode was produced by Carlos Cherubov.
Choose life. Choose a career. 